0: For those of you who don't uh, know me, my name is Brian Criscolo. I serve on staff at uh, Delray Church, and this morning I'm going to be continuing my sermon series in the letter to uh, Colossians that I began a few weeks ago. Um, Before I do that, though, uh, I know Landon just prayed, but let's bow our heads again together and pray and lift this time up to God in prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name this morning We thank you for the gift of salvation that you freely bestowed on each one of us who has professed faith in your son, Jesus. We thank you for how you care for us as a a father, having made us part of your family. And we, we thank you for how you've made us here, the believers in Los Angeles, a family. God, we lift this time of study up to you this morning. We pray that you are glorified in our time of study this morning, and we pray that you would sanctify us in our time of study this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray this, amen. Well, as I said, I'm gonna be continuing my sermon series in the letter of Colossians that I began a few weeks ago. Um, In that previous sermon, I took some time to introduce you to the letter and give you a framework for understanding and interpreting what was to come in the verses. Uh, This morning though, we'll be jumping into the text and looking specifically at verses 3 through 12 of chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you can open to Colossians 1. The title of this sermon series, as you can see on your outline if you have one, is Firmly Established and Steadfast, the Need for Prayer, Christ, Sacrifice, Revelation, and Application in the Life of the Church. And I realize that that if you missed that previous sermon, or or maybe you just don't remember it because it was a few weeks ago, then this series title is is likely not going to make much sense. It's probably a little confusing, and you're wondering how it connects to the letter as a whole. So before we jump into verses 3 through 12 this morning, I want to just take some time um, and review and remind you briefly some of those main points from that introductory sermon so that we're all refreshed and, and up to speed and then ready to dig into the text this morning. And this leads to the first point on your outline, prior points of background. And the first point of background to review is the author and the audience. Uh, you'll recall the author of this letter is the Apostle Paul. We see this in uh, verse 1.1, the first verse of the letter, and verse 418, the last verse of this letter. And it's assumed that Paul wrote this letter during his first Roman imprisonment in the year AD 60, where he spent uh, roughly two years under house arrest, um, as I said, in Rome. And Paul alludes to this at the end of the letter in verse 418 when he says, Remember my imprisonment. Um, As well in verse 1 1, the first verse of the letter, we see that Timothy had some part to play in the writing of this letter. Uh, Timothy was a co-worker and co-laborer in the gospel with Paul. They were very close friends. You can read about Timothy in several of Paul's other letters, and Paul even wrote letters directly to Timothy. So in terms of authorship, Paul wrote this letter from a Roman prison with the help of Timothy. And the audience, as as the name of the letter implies, are the believers in Colossae. And we see this confirmed in chapter 1, verse 2, which says, "To." the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who are at Colossae. Now, something worth noting is that this letter uh, wouldn't have been read individually by each of the Christians in Colossae. Instead, it would have been read out loud at a corporate gathering like we're doing here today. This is why Paul says in verse 416 towards the end of the letter, when this letter is read among you. Paul is assuming that the believers would gather together and hear this letter read out loud among all of them. And so then as the believers in Colossae were hearing this letter in this corporate setting, they would be thinking about how what they're hearing was not just meant to edify and sanctify each of them individually for their own benefit, but as well was meant to edify and sanctify the body of gathered believers together corporately as they lived life together and engaged the world together. And so as well as as we study this letter together corporately this morning, we too should be thinking about uh, not only how this applies to us as individuals, but as well how it applies to us corporately and how our individual application of what we're studying is ultimately meant to benefit and sanctify our local church so that we as a church body corporately might be sanctified for the work before us as we live life together and engage the world together. So again, the author was Paul, and he wrote this letter to the gathered body of believers in Colossae. But what about the reason he wrote it? This is the next point of background to review from that prior sermon. What was Paul's aim in writing this letter? Well, verse 23 of chapter 1 helps us answer this question. In that verse, uh, look at it, verse 23, chapter 1, Paul exhorts the Colossians to continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. So we see a couple things in this verse. The first is that these believers in Colossae have up to this point been faithful as a body of believers. It's why Paul tells them to continue in the faith. He wants them to continue to be faithful as they've previously been. This is also why in verse 1 he refers to them as faithful brethren. So first we see in this verse that these believers have been faithful, but secondly we see that Paul is concerned that they may not continue to be faithful. Again, this is why he exhorts them to continue in the faith and to continue firmly established and steadfast and to not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. So two things we see in this verse. The first is that they have been faithful, and the second is that Paul is concerned for their continued faithfulness. And the reason he's concerned for their continued faithfulness is because of the false doctrines being taught among the believers in Colossae. These False and heretical teachings are what scholars generally refer to as the Colossian heresy. And this is something I went into in more detail uh, in, in the last sermon. So if you want to know more, go back and, and listen to that. But overall, the Colossian heresy, these false teachings were antithetical to Christianity in general and a threat to the continued faithfulness of the believers in Colossae specifically. And so again, Paul is concerned that the hope of the gospel that they had been living faithfully in light of, Paul is concerned that this faithfulness would be hindered or even halted by these heresies. And so his central aim in this letter is what we read in chapter 1, verse 23, that they remain firmly established and steadfast. And this is why that's the main sermon series title, because this was Paul's hope and prayer for them, that they would remain faithful as they had been not moved but firm in their belief even in the midst of the spreading heresy and so then when we read this letter and when we move through it we can't separate the text from this big picture agenda of paul's instead we need to read the text in light of this big picture this concern paul has for them that they continue in their faithfulness and when we do this when we keep this big picture in mind uh, we can see broadly speaking how Paul carries out this aim he has of keeping them firmly established in their faith. He does it by highlighting five major themes in this letter. Again, we discussed this in the last sermon, uh, but I wanna briefly mention it because these themes give us a broad outline through which we can better understand and organize the text and the letter as we move through it. So first, we, we have the theme of prayer. Paul tells them that he has been and will continue to be praying for them. We see this in chapter one, verses three through 12, which we're gonna look at closer this morning. Second, we see that theme of Christ. Paul preaches Christ to them and reminds them of what God has done for them in Christ. We see this in chapter one, verses 13 through 23. Third, we see the theme of sacrifice. Paul tells them about how the sacrifice, about the sacrifices he has made and will continue to make on their behalf. We see this in chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 3. Fourth, we see the theme of revelation. Paul calls out the heresy being spread among them in Colossae, and he points the Colossians instead back to the truth as God has already revealed it. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through chapter 3, verse 4. And then fifth, we see the theme of application. Paul applies the truth of what God has done for them in Christ to their lives and calls them to faithful living. We see this in chapter 3, verse 5, through chapter 4, verse 6. So we have these five themes of Paul. Now keep in mind that while each of these sections of verses um, does have one of these themes as its main theme, Paul does still intertwine and overlap all of these themes throughout the letter. Each of these sections of verses is not simply isolated to one theme each, but these are the overarching themes of each of those sections of verses that Paul points to as a way to help him accomplish accomplish his aim of keeping them firmly established and steadfast, even in the midst of the false teachers. And hopefully now the, the sermon series title, make sense to you if it didn't already. Again, that title is Firmly Established and Steadfast, The Need for Prayer, Christ, Sacrifice, Revelation and Application in the Life of the Church. This title encompasses Paul's purpose in writing the letter and it highlights the themes Paul points to as a means to help the church in Colossae remain faithful. And again, if you want to hear more about this, just go back and and listen to that previous sermon. Now, the title of today's sermon, again, as you can see on your outline, is Prayers for the Faithful. And having just talked about the five themes in this letter, it should be clear why this is the title. It's because we are looking at verses 3 through 12 of chapter 1, specifically where this theme of prayer comes up. In these verses, Paul talks about how he has been and will continue to be praying for those believers in Colossae. And remember, this all centers around building them up in their faith so they won't be moved and shaken by the false teachers in their midst. And in these verses, we will see two different types of prayers from Paul to help him in this task. The first is a prayer of thanksgiving, which you can see is point two on your outline. And the second is a prayer of intercession, which you can see is point three on your outline. So let's look at these verses now. Uh, this leads to the second point on your outline, Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. Look at verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. It says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. So first notice this word, we. Right? Who is the we here? Well, certainly it refers to Paul and Timothy, since verse 1 mentions them as as the ones writing the letter, Uh, but as well, it also likely refers to those brothers in Christ that Paul mentions at the end of the letter. You don't need to turn there, but in verse 4-6, he mentions a man named Tychicus. Tychicus served with Paul in Ephesus, where Paul ministered for three years, and we see from verse 4-6 that Paul is dispatching Tychicus as his personal messenger to bring this letter to the Colossians. Paul also mentions Onesimus in verse 4-9, who Paul says is from their city originally and is coming back with Tychicus. In verses 4-10 and 11, Paul mentions Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, who he says are fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and who were an encouragement to him, and who he says are sending the believers in Colossae greetings. In verse 4:12, he mentions Epaphras, who also sends them greetings, and who we will see in verse seven of chapter one, actually planted the church in Colossae and was likely the pastor of those believers in Colossae. In 4.14, he talks about Luke and Demas as well sending their greetings. So there were a group of brothers who were laboring alongside Paul in his ministry work and part of that work was to offer prayers for the believers in Colossae. So the we here in verse three likely refers to all of these men and this phrase, we give thanks to, to God likely refers to the way these men gathered together corporately to offer prayers of thanksgiving to God on behalf of the believers in Colossae. And as well in verse three, this phrase, always praying for you, lets the readers know that these prayers are not occasional or few and far between. No, they are a consistent part of their daily prayer life. These men would thank God for the faithfulness of these believers, both corporately, when they were together, but likely as well individually, whenever they prayed to God. This church at Colossae was a permanent fixture on their prayer list, and they always gave thanks to God for them. And this example, this example of Paul and his fellow workers, ought to provide us some exhortation and encouragement to, to as well be diligent and consistent in, in our prayers for one another. Praying. For one another and for our church must be a permanent fixture on each one of our prayer lists. Why? Because praying for one another is one of the most powerful tools at our disposal in our fight to remain what Paul wanted the Colossians to remain that is, faithful as individuals who make up this church. And so, corporately and individually, we must be devoted to regularly praying for the faithfulness of one another. We must be devoted to praying that we would not be dragged into sin or division or disbelief or darkness or any other kind of unfaithfulness. And that also means that we must not downplay sin and the forces of darkness, but instead recognize the, the seriousness threat that it causes to the the body corporately and how sin in one of us can ultimately become a problem for all of us and can impact the witness of the whole church. Paul says in Galatians 5 9 that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Sin in one of us if allowed to continue will impact and affect and infect others of us and so then recognizing the the seriousness of sin we must be diligently devoted to praying for the faithfulness of one another and lifting one another up to God in prayer regularly as a Christian practice. And in addition to praying specifically for our faithfulness, I mean, there are no doubt tons of other things going on in our individual lives that we can also be praying about for one another regularly. And we should be. But that also means we need to be open and vulnerable with one another and share our prayer requests with one another. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. When we seek God and ask of him what is according to his will, great things will happen. Prayerfulness is powerful. God has ordained to work his will through prayer, which means we all need to be prayerful and as well, we all need prayer. so so let me encourage you to be prayerful for one another and as well to ask for prayer from others if you need it and allow your brothers and sisters in this church to follow the example of paul and his companions and be praying always for one another now back to verse three one thing that i that i hope is obvious about this verse Verse 3 of Colossians 1, one thing I hope is obvious, but I'm going to point out anyways, is that these prayers of thanksgiving are not a thank you to the Colossians, but instead are a thank you to God. Paul says we give thanks to who? To God, because he is the one who is in control and who sustains and nourishes his people. And specifically, Paul gives thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I know that this is a gathering of, of Christians, so we ought to all understand this language of God and father and jesus Uh, but in case there's anyone here that that is is not a believer or or is new in their faith and these terms of god and father and jesus are are maybe confusing to you let let me take a moment and, and try to clear it up the god of the bible the god of creation the god that paul is referring to and that the colossians serve is what we refer to as a triune god he is one god in three persons right this is the witness of scripture There is only one God, one being with the divine nature of God, but this one God eternally exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. They are all distinct persons, but they eternally exist as God, and they cannot be separated or divided from that one divine nature. So we have three persons in the one true and living God, And in the first century, in real human history, God the Father sent God the Son to take on a second nature in addition to his divine nature. And that second nature was was that of humanity. God the Son became a man. And, And this is who Jesus of Nazareth is. He is the eternal Son who took on a second human nature and by the power of the Holy Spirit was conceived and born to a woman named Mary. And so God the Son is now and forevermore the God-man Jesus. He is fully God and fully man. So you see Paul using the names of God and Father and Jesus here. And hopefully you understand this language now if you didn't already. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Son also took on a second human nature. And this is who Jesus is. But what about these references to Lord and Savior? Sorry, Lord and Christ in relationship to Jesus that, that Paul uses. Right? He says, look at verse 3 again, he says, Our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that referring to? Well, to answer that, I first need to answer the question of why did God the Son become a man? Was it just because he was bored? Was he bored with only having you know, this one divine nature? And he wanted to try on a, a second human nature? Did he look down on the humans that he created and think, man, I am missing out. i got to get me some of that human nature. No. And by the way, you're laughing. You all realize I'm being funny, which is good. That's certainly not the case. In fact, Scripture tells us that God is lacking nothing. The eternal relationship experienced between the Father and Son and Spirit is perfect, and they don't need anything they don't already have. In fact, God didn't even need to create the universe for that matter. Understand, creation was not out of need, but out of desire. God wanted to. Likewise, the sending of the Son was not out of a need. It was God's loving desire to do so. So so God the Son did not become a man to fill up something in himself that he was missing or lacking. Instead, he did it to fill up something in us that is missing and lacking. And that thing in us and in all humanity that is missing and lacking is our ability to obey God. And that's because we were all born sinners. It's it's part of our nature. And this means that we are incapable of being completely obedient to God. And so we've all fallen short of his holy standards, whether in our hearts or in our words or in our actions or in all of these areas. We've all done this. And because God is perfect in all of his attributes including in his justice he cannot ignore our sins against him he must deal with them and he does he is the giver of life and so the punishment for disobeying him is the taking back of life it's physical death and it's everlasting punishment as we are separated from him after we die this is something that we will all experience unless unless by the grace of God at work in us, we trust and have faith in what God the Son did to save sinners, to save us and to fill up what was lacking in us. Remember, we are lacking our ability to obey God perfectly and so God the Son steps into humanity. He takes on a second human nature to do that very thing on our behalf. He, unlike anyone else ever born, could live in complete obedience to God because he is God himself. And because he is now also fully man, he can and does represent us as a human and stands in our place to act how we were unable to act. That is, in complete obedience to God the Father. And then after living a life free from any stain or blemish of sin, he willingly gave himself up in death as a perfect sacrifice to God. He didn't deserve the punishment of physical death because he never sinned and yet he willingly took on that punishment to pay the price that we owe for our inability to obey God perfectly. And then to show that his sacrifice was actually acceptable to God and that it did actually accomplish something, Jesus rose from the dead in his body three days after he died to prove that he conquered the consequences of sin, which is death. And because he is fully God, His sacrifice was powerful enough to cover all the sins, past, present, and future, of all who would ever come to believe in what he did on their behalf. And so if if you personally confess to God that you are in fact a sinner, and if you personally profess faith in what the God-man Jesus did on your behalf, then you personally will be spared the punishment that is awaiting you and that you will receive otherwise. You will be saved from the consequences of your sins. That's why Paul uses the name Christ in verse three in reference to Jesus. Christ means Messiah or anointed one or savior. And that is exactly what Jesus is, a savior. And as well, your profession of faith in Jesus means you've, you've been given a new heart that is now capable of obeying God in a way that pleases him, which you weren't able to do before. This is a miraculous inner work enacted upon you by God the Holy Spirit who indwells and lives in you as a believer in Jesus. He is the catalyst for your faith. It is prompted and accomplished by the Holy Spirit, regenerating your once dead heart that was incapable of obedience and giving you a new heart that is now alive in Christ Jesus and able to follow after him in obedience. And you will actually want to and seek to do this. This is the natural outworking of true and living faith, following after Jesus in obedience and serving him as your Lord. And this is why Paul not only refers to Jesus as Christ, but also as Lord in verse three, because that is what he is, our Lord and Savior. And following after Jesus and serving him as your Lord, it will not feel like a chore to you. It will not feel like a heavy burden that's a struggle to do. Instead, you will actually find joy in it. And it won't be a mere earthly kind of joy, but a heavenly and a godly kind of joy that can only be found as one lives in relationship with Jesus. In fact, this is what Jesus tells his disciples he wants for them. In John 15 11, Jesus says, these things, these things I've spoken to you, or these things being the commands he's asking them to follow and obey, these things I've spoken to you. Why? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. I mean, just think about that for a moment. The the joy that the God-man Jesus experiences as as someone who is one with the Father and Spirit, The, the joy that the second person of the one triune God experiences in his relationship within himself is offering a piece of that joy to us if we simply submit to our precious Savior and follow after him. This, this verse, John 15, 11, it, it's amazing to me. And it's always stood out in my mind. My, my whole Christian life, and I, I pray it stands out in your mind as well and drives you to not only profess saving faith in Jesus as your Savior, but also drives you to daily seek to obey Him as your Lord because that is where true joy is found. It's found in Jesus. It's, so all this information... I just spent the last six or seven minutes talking about, about who God is and who Jesus is and the offer of salvation and the inner work of the Holy Spirit to save sinners like us, that would have all been understood to the Colossians when Paul says that he thanks God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then as we move into verse 4, we see that one of the reasons Paul and his fellow workers are continually thanking God for the Colossians is because of their faith in Jesus. That faith I just talked about us all needing. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Since, or because, we are praying for you always, because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. This is why Paul and his companions are thanking God without ceasing. It's because of the Colossians' faith. And beyond that, they are thanking God in their prayers continually because the Colossians' faith has not just stopped at mere intellectual assent. It has proven itself to be true faith because it has overflowed into action. Look at verse 4 again. Verse 4 says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, the saints being the men and women who are believers in Colossae, they are marked by loving one another. So their faith in Christ Jesus has taken root and it's yielded fruit. And that fruit is that they are actually living in Christ Jesus. They're living under his lordship as they obey his command to love one another. This is a command Jesus gave to his disciples and by extension to all Christians to love one another. As well, it's a common theme throughout the New Testament. that believers in their local church should love one another. So loving one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ is an expectation of all believers. It's a basic Christian virtue. In fact, it's so basic to the Christian life that I would say if you have no love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you ought to examine your faith and that ought to concern you. And and biblical love, godly love, the love Jesus talks about with his disciples, it's not about some feeling or emotion. Instead, it's about action. It's about being sacrificial, for one another. This is an expectation of believers in Christ. And here we see that the Colossians were exhibiting this godly love for one another in such a great measure that Paul is praising God for this continually. It's why he opens in verse 2 referring to them as faithful brethren and why later in verse 7 we will read how Epaphras told Paul about their love in the Spirit. It's because they are living out their faith as they love one another in their church. And the example of the Colossians in this letter ought to motivate us here corporately to ask ourselves right if Paul was writing a letter to us today, would he refer to us the same way? Would he call us faithful brethren and praise and thank God for our love that we display for one another? Or more personally, if Paul was writing to, to you as an individual, Would he be expressing to you how he thanks God for your love for the saints here at Delray? Are you displaying godly love in your life and in your relationships? Are you displaying the love of Jesus with your fellow brothers and sisters here at Delray Church? Are you sacrificing for them? Are you serving them? Are you putting them first over yourself? Are you giving an offering regularly as part of your display of love for them? Are you making the Sunday corporate gathering a priority in your life as part of your display of love for them? And not just by being here present physically at our gatherings, but by being present emotionally for them as well. Are you loving them the way you've been called to love them? Further, in terms of being faithful, are you loving your neighbor? Are you loving this city? Are you sharing the gospel? Being faithful means we are committed to not just loving one another in here, but, but, but as well loving those who are far from Christ out there. Whose soul are you longing to see saved? Who, who did you share the gospel with this week? Who are you inviting to come to church on Sundays? And I'm not asking these questions to point the finger in some passive manner about our failure to be on mission, nor because I'm concerned about our love for one another. In fact, I regularly see members in this church displaying godly love for one another So these questions are not meant to to call anyone out. I I just think this is something worth our time to consider. To consider how we corporately are doing this well and how we corporately might be failing in this. And as well to consider how you personally might be doing this well and how you personally might be failing in this. Because there is always going to be room for improvement in our love for one another. And there's always going to be things tempting us to wander and distract us from our mission. And so our faithfulness and our love for one another is worth taking some time to consider and think about as we seek to be more and more faithful to the Lord in this life and as we strive to reflect our Lord more and more in this life. So we've seen two reasons why Paul's thanking God in his prayers for the Colossians. The first is because of their faith and the second is because of their love as seen in verse 4. And then as we move into verse 5, Paul transitions into an explanation of what grounds their faith and love. Those two things Paul is thankful and praising God for. Okay, look at verse 5. He says that their faith and love, verse 5, their faith and love is because of or, or grounded in the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So the Colossians have a hope. And Paul says this hope is something they previously heard, which Paul refers to as the word of truth and the gospel. Referring to this hope as the truth would have put it in opposition to the false teachings of the heretics. Remember, Paul's combating heretical teachings that are seeking to hinder their faith, and so he wants to remind them of the truths that they have already been taught as a way to affirm their knowledge and reinforce their faith and push aside any false teachings on this subject. So he reminds the Colossians that they have a true hope, a true confidence, a true assurance. And of this hope, Paul says that it is laid up for them in heaven. You see that in verse 5? The hope laid up for you in heaven. Now to understand what this phrase laid up for them in heaven means, we need to turn to chapter 3 verse 1 for a moment. So turn there for a moment. It's just one page over. Look at verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This verse talks about Christ, that is Jesus, and it says he is above and seated at the right hand of God. So when Paul says in verse 1-5 that they have a hope laid up for them in heaven, he's referring to Jesus who is right now in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. After his bodily resurrection from the dead, which, which I mentioned earlier, after that, Jesus ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And, and while in heaven, he is advocating on behalf of believers to the Father to assure their salvation. That is the hope that the believers in Colossae have. That's the assurance they have. It's the assurance that their faith and therefore their salvation is secure in the hands of the one who sits in heaven as their perfect substitute and advocate. But as well, there is a second dimension to this phrase, hope laid up for you in heaven. These two words, laid up, they mean awaiting. So the Colossians' faith and love is as well grounded in a hope that is awaiting them in heaven. In other words, while their faith is grounded in the work of Jesus who is right now in heaven and securing their salvation, their hope is also grounded in Jesus who is in heaven awaiting his return to earth to be with them. It's grounded in the hope of a time when Jesus, the one who died to save us from the consequences of our sins and who rose victorious from the grave, it is the hope of a time when he will return to earth in his resurrected body. And when he does... He will raise to life all those throughout history who have placed their faith in him as their savior and he will dwell with them personally. And as well when he returns, he will raise the wicked unto judgment and he will do away with with all sin and all dysfunction and all death and all those things we wish we didn't have to deal with in this life, which for the Colossians included the false teachers that were seeking to hinder their faith. When he returns, he'll do away with all of that and he will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people, and he will make all things new. And this reign of Jesus on earth with his people, it will have no end. It will be everlasting. This is the hope of the Colossians. This is the hope of, of all Christians around the world and throughout the history of Christ's people. These are the future blessings that have been promised to Christ. Church to be enjoyed one day by the Christian. And this is why the call of the Christian in this life is, is Maranatha. That word Maranatha, it means come, Lord, come. Believers in Jesus long for and hope for and await his promise to come back for them. And who knows? Maybe he'll come back in 2021. Maybe he'll come back this very month. Maybe he'll come back this very Afternoon. His return is imminent. It will happen. And, and knowing this should be a sobering reminder of the urgency of our mission to share this life giving message with the lost. Why? Because it's a true message. That's why in verse 5, Paul referred to this hope as truth and gospel. This is not some pie in the sky hope. It's not Paul just saying, hey, this is the truth, then you should believe it because I said it. No. Instead, it's truth because it's grounded and based on a real and historical and verifiable event, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And while Paul isn't directly making this point here, it certainly would have been part of the truth of the gospel that he's thanking God that they have faith and hope in. The historical fact that Jesus was raised from the dead proved that his life and death was actually received by God as an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And so if he, Jesus, has actually been raised from the dead, then the Colossians and we can actually have confidence that our belief in Jesus has actually saved us from the finality of death and that we already have received everlasting life with Jesus and that we one day will experience that everlasting life with him when he returns. This is the hope that grounds and strengthens the faith of the Colossians. And this is the hope that ought to ground and strengthen our faith as well. And so as Paul is encouraging them by telling them how he continually thanks God for them, he also reminds them of how their faith is grounded in a true hope as a way to strengthen their faith and push back against the claims of those heretics. And then Paul continues to encourage and strengthen their faith. By talking about the universality of this message, the the universality of the faith of the Colossians that he is praising God for. Look at verses six through eight. Chapter one, verses six through eight. Paul says, which has come to you, referring to the message of the gospel that they hope in, right? It has come to you just as in all the world also It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So Paul reiterates in these verses some of what he's said before mainly that this gospel has produced a vigorous and increasing fruit of Christian life in Colossae. This is why he's praising and thanking God for them in verse 3. And Paul also mentions Epaphras, who we spoke about briefly earlier in the sermon. He's the one who planted the church in Colossae. This is why Paul says in verse 7, in speaking of the gospel, that they learned it from Epaphras. You see that in those verses? Learned it from Epaphras. But as well... Paul tells the Colossians in verse 6 specifically how this is also happening in all the world. You see that in verse 6, Paul says, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. And Paul saying this was likely meant to stand in contrast to those local peddlers of false truths and false religions that were in Colossae whose message was likely restricted in its appeal and scope to certain towns and cities. Paul combats their message by testifying to the universality of the message of truth, the message of the gospel, the message of what God has done in Christ that the Colossians have faith in and which Paul thanks God for. And because it's a true message, unlike the false message of the heretics, it is global in its reach. This, this true message is, that they learned from Epaphras. This message is global in its reach and therefore can speak to the condition of all men and all women and can therefore save all men and all women and can therefore bear fruit in all men and all women. The true message of the gospel, as Paul says in verse six, is universal and it is effective. And because of its universality and effectiveness, that then all the more verifies to the Colossians its authenticity and truthfulness and would have helped Paul make his case against the false claims of the heretics and would have helped the Colossians remain steadfast and faithful. And then Paul summarizes and again reiterates his prayer of thanksgiving to God for them by saying in the first half of verse 9, look at verse 9, for this reason also since the day we heard of it, it being their faith and love since the day we heard of it, We have not ceased to pray for you. That is to thank God for you. But that is not all Paul prays for in his efforts, to see the Colossians remain steadfast and faithful. And this leads to the next point on your outline, Paul's prayer of intercession. Look at verse 9 again. Paul says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask... Or pray, and to pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So, in addition to his prayer of thanksgiving, he's also offering a prayer of intercession. To intercede means to intervene on behalf of another. And that is exactly what Paul is doing. He is interceding on their behalf to God, and he is interceding specifically, as we see in verse 9, that they would be. Filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, we know that they already have knowledge of God's will. It's why Paul just got done telling them that he is praising God for them. However, the fact that he intercedes for them here that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will suggests that there was some spiritual vacuum in them that needed to be filled or corrected or perhaps deepened. And this is likely because they had been allowing the true knowledge that Epaphras filled them with previously to become shallow or replaced and filled with the false knowledge and ideas of those heretics. So so Paul prays that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And then Paul describes what it means to have knowledge of God's will. It is to have spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see that in verse 9? Spiritual wisdom. Wisdom and understanding. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, these three qualities, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, are understood as qualities that are gifts of God, which He imparts by His Spirit to those who are faithful. As well in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about relying on the Spirit for true wisdom and knowledge. And so we want to understand this prayer of intercession in light of this. The knowledge of God's will... The wisdom and understanding that Paul is praying they be filled with only comes from God, the Holy Spirit. It is he, the Spirit, who imparts these qualities of godly wisdom and understanding. And so Paul's prayer here in Colossians 1.9, that God would increase their knowledge, is essentially a prayer for them to be reminded and filled with what they already know as those who have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. To be reminded of what Epaphras, their pastor, taught them and which was confirmed in them as true godly knowledge by the indwelling and inner working of the Holy Spirit. Paul wants them to be reminded of what they already know in the Spirit so that they won't be carried away with what Paul will later in the letter call persuasive arguments and philosophy and man's traditions, which Paul will later say has the appearance of wisdom but is ultimately of no value to them. Because it comes from the spirit of man, those false human teachers, and not from the spirit of God. And it is therefore not in accordance with God's will. And then in verse 10, verse 10 Paul goes on to tell them the reason that he prays this for them. Why does he pray for them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will? Look at verse 10. It is so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So as they are filled with godly knowledge, it will overflow into good works, into what Paul refers to in verse 10 as walking in a manner worthy of the Lord and bearing fruit. And in fact, it has already done that. Again, this is why Paul was thanking God for them earlier in the chapter. But but Paul is concerned that it might stop because of the false knowledge they are being filled with. And so here, he's interceding and praying that what's been happening in their lives up to now, their faithful living would continue. And that they would not be halted in it, but instead would remain steadfast and faithful. Or as he says in verse 10, that they would continue to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And you can see here how in Paul's mind, this idea of godly knowledge leading to godly living is cyclical. It's not a one and done thing. You don't gain the knowledge, obey, and that's it. No, it's, it's cyclical and, and repeating and growing. And that's true of any relationship. I think about my, my marriage. I can't rely on what I knew about my wife when we got married as I seek to love and serve her over 15 years later. No. Instead, I need to continually seek to know and understand my wife more deeply and more thoroughly as the years go on, so I can more deeply and more thoroughly love and serve her as the years go on. And this is true of all meaningful relationships, especially our relationship with God. And so here in these verses, we see the cyclical nature of godly knowledge leading to godly living. Through Epaphras, The Colossians had gained knowledge of what God had done for them in Christ. This in turn led to their faith and to good works as a community on mission. This is what we saw in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Then in verse 9, we saw Paul pray that they be filled all the more with knowledge. Why? So they could obey all the more and bear more fruit. That's what he said in verse 10. And then, at the end of verse 10, he said, and increase in the knowledge of God. You see that at the end of verse 10? and increase the knowledge of god you see how this is cyclical it's orthodoxy leading to orthopraxy leading to orthodoxy leading to orthopraxy and on and on this is a lifelong journey and task and calling the colossians and we've been called to we should daily be seeking to understand god more deeply and then daily seeking to apply what we learned about god more thoroughly in our lives And then once again, seeking to understand God more deeply. And then once again, seeking to apply that in our lives. And on and on and on until the day Christ returns or until the day he calls us home. This is what Paul prays for the Colossians. But but we must recognize that this is not something that we can do on our own. And this is what Paul tells the Colossians in verse 11. In verse 11, he says, You do this, you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit and increasing in knowledge by being, verse 11, look at it, by being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Nothing short of God's almighty power at work within them would enable them to be successful in this. Nothing other than God's glorious might would allow them to remain steadfast and patient. You see that in verse 11, Paul says, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. In the face of trials and oppositions that the false teachers and those evil forces in the Lycus River Valley pose, and in light of the call for them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, these believers would need the mighty power of God. They would need it so they might endure. That is what it means to be steadfast. And they would need it so that they might be long-suffering. That is what it means to be patient. They would need the power of God in them to endure and be long-suffering as they're prodded and Poked and tested and, and possibly made to suffer by the evil forces at work in the heretics. They would need the power of God in the midst of this so that they would not be moved from their hope and faith in the gospel. And praise be to God because they and we don't need to look to find this power. Instead, God has already graciously given it to them and to us as believers in Jesus. We've already talked about how believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Well, part of what the Holy Spirit does is empowers us in our daily lives to live obediently and remain faithful to God. So we have the power of God in us as we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, as well the God-man Jesus. Our Lord and Savior tells us in Matthew 28 that he too is with us until the ends of the age. So as believers, We already have the power of God dwelling in and with us. We have the power of the one who is all-powerful. We have the power of the one who raised Jesus from the dead and who put Jesus in authority over everyone and everything in heaven and on earth. We have the power of that one, of that God, the only true and living God in and with us. And so that means then that the Colossians and we are already strengthened with the power of his glorious might and we therefore can endure and can be long-suffering even in the midst of forces that would seem to derail us and knock us off course and show us to be unfaithful. This is what Paul longs for and prays for in the Colossians, that they might recognize God's power in them and be strengthened to continue to live in obedience and faith. And he ends verse 11 with the word joyously. They can endure and be long-suffering joyously. Why? Because they know who empowers them. And they know that he has already secured their salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And they know that one day every knee will bow in submission to him, including the false teachers who are among them. And so they can endure and push on joyfully no matter what happens in this life. And so they have reason then, as verse 12 says, look at verse 12, they have reason then to give thanks to the Father. And in fact, they have reason to joyously give thanks to the Father. This word joyously that we just looked at in verse 11 could also be connected to this phrase giving thanks thanks to the Father. So the Colossians can joyously give thanks to the Father because of what he has done in empowering them in this life, as verse 11 said. And as well, they have reason to joyously give thanks to the Father because, look at verse 12 again, because he has qualified us, or them, the Colossians, he has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, or in the realm of light. So the fathers qualified them to share in an inheritance of the saints. And what is this inheritance? Well, it's what we read Paul say to the Colossians that they were hoping for in verse 5. Look briefly back at verse 5. Recall it says that the Colossians were hoping for what was laid up for them in heaven. And that thing that is laid up for them in heaven, that thing that is awaiting them in heaven, is Jesus who is right now sitting at the right hand of the Father, securing their salvation and awaiting the time he will return to earth and dwell with his people forever. This is the inheritance of the saints that Paul mentions in verse 12 and that Paul says the Colossians ought to be joyously thanking God the Father for. And this inheritance, Paul says, is in light. You see that at the end of verse 12? It's in light or or in the realm of, of light because when they receive this inheritance it will be at the return of Jesus who is light this is what their god-given belief in Jesus has qualified them for and so they ought to joyously thank the father for how he has empowered them in this life and how he has saved them in the life to come so we've seen in verses 3 through 12 this morning paul pointing the colossians to this theme of prayer Remember, we discussed at the beginning of the sermon how Paul highlights five major themes as he moves through the letter. He does this as a way to encourage the Colossians to remain steadfast and faithful in the midst of the dark spiritual forces at work in those false teachers as they were seeking to infiltrate the church at Colossae. And so here specifically in these verses this morning, we looked at this theme of prayer. And we saw how Paul sought to help the Colossians remain firmly established and steadfast in their faith by telling them how he and his companions prayed continuously for them, both by praising and thanking God for them and their faithfulness and by interceding on their behalf so that they might continue in their faithfulness and grow in their knowledge of God and strive to obey him more fully and to be joyful to God as they do this because of what he's done for them. And just as they were exhorted to joyfully thank the God of their salvation, we too ought to be joyously thanking the God of our salvation. We too ought to be thanking Him for what He has done for us in this life, and we ought to be thanking Him for what He has promised to do for us in the life to come. We ought to be joyously thanking God for our salvation and for the hope of what is awaiting us in heaven. And that hope... That hope is what we have pictured here in this this cup. If you didn't grab one, you can grab one off either one of these tables to the side. This cup, it's a picture of the hope laid up for us in heaven. It's a picture of Jesus who is our hope and who is the one laid up for us in heaven and who we are waiting to return for us. And we have this hope as pictured in this cup because of his perfect life, death, And resurrection. When you look at this cup, you ought to be reminded of the fact that no one else in history other than Jesus was worthy enough to stand before God and not be found guilty of sinning against him. This cup, this juice and and cracker, it ought to remind you of how only Jesus could stand before God holy and blameless. And it ought to remind you of how Jesus, out of an overflow of his love, allowed us to partake in his holy and blameless life by offering his perfect life up to God the Father in death on our behalf. His body was literally crushed for our sake as is represented in the cracker on the top of this and his blood was literally spilled for our sake as he died on a cross as is pictured in in the juice. And so I'm going to close us in prayer and then as Landon comes up to lead us in worship, I want you to think about this cup and what it pictures. Think about the cracker and the juice and how it represents what God has done for you in Christ and how it represents the hope of an everlasting life to come. And then then when you're ready, after I pray, during our time of of singing, I want you to eat the cracker and, and, and drink the juice in remembrance of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we thank you for this cup this cracker and juice, and for giving us a visible picture of the gift of salvation in it. We pray, God, that as we consider what this cup represents, that we would be reminded of what we've studied in this text of Colossians this morning, that we would be reminded of the the truth of the gospel and the gift of faith and, and of what it looks like to live in response to that gift of faith and in response to our hope of what is to come when our Lord and Savior Jesus returns for us. We pray, God, that as we await his glorious return, that we here at this church in Los Angeles would be marked by the very thing Paul was praising the Colossians for being marked by. And that is a vibrant love for one another that overflows from our faith and hope in Christ so that the world out there might look at us in here and see you and be drawn to you and be saved by you so that they too might have the same faith love and hope that we have we pray this all in the name of your son Jesus amen